Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 108, recorded on March 10th, 2021. The Cloud Pod moves forward without Jedi. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and welcome back, Peter. Hello, everybody. Did you get your 12 hours of sleep required to for beauty rest needs and hibernation? Uh, is that to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's to you. <laughs> Clearly, he hasn't listened to 107 yet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I, did, I did actually catch up on uh, Jonathan's little play that he did with Google Voice technology in that episode, I think, 105, where we were, we were using that example of his Bitcoin mining farm. That was pretty good. That's clever. Or clever that's what the power of being the editor-in-chief of the podcast that said my <laughs> computer's running much better now so i'm not sure it was a joke <laughs> uh, all right well there's a there's some news going on this week first up uh, okta apparently is going to buy security rival auth zero for 6.5 billion dollars apparently stock market wasn't super happy about this as it caused their stock to plunge uh, after the announcement, and it has been down pretty much since the announcement. Auth0 last raised capital in July uh, of last year at $1.92 billion valuation, and the plan is for Auth0 to continue to operate independently, which is a little weird for me since they have a very directly competitive product, and time will tell if this strategy will stick for them or if they'll combine the efforts as Okta, like I mentioned, had an acquisition a couple years ago where they got into the SaaS identification space. I haven't, haven't worked at companies which have been acquired many times now. I can say that they always say that they're going to operate as separate entities until they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not telling us their plan. That's, yeah. that's what's yeah. happening. That's what that code means. Yeah. yeah. Don't panic is what they're saying. Don't bail. Not yet. We don't know if we want to keep you yet or not. So we need you to stay in your seats for as long as possible until we know if you're redundant. And then we'll get rid of you. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's a little interesting. You know, I think everyone kind of sees Auth0 as a bit of the Twilio of identity. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting to see them get snapped up. And that really kind of only leaves really Okta and Ping as the two big players. There's a bunch of smaller guys who don't have the market share that Auth0 did. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if someone kind of fills the gap now that they've been acquired and how they change their product strategy. I'm actually hoping there will be a, an independent sort of like federated sign-on service. I mean, we have the Google and Facebook and Apple like right now, which are all still kind of tied in with those ecosystems. I'm really hoping that another public identity provider comes along that can offer the same kinds of services, which isn't tied to having a Google account and your data collected or Apple account and paying that tax or Facebook account and, you know, selling your soul to Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. But nice. No, I think there's definitely more room in the market for more authentication offerings. Yeah, that's a really quick way to get me not to use your app is when your only login option is Facebook. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we're not using this one. Yeah, for sure. Like it. I'm surprised the market is that upset about it. I mean, I thought it seems like a pretty good long-term play, even if they're overpaying like price to sales, probably double their, uh, what they're valued at. So that's probably why the stock is going down a little bit, but I bet. Uh, I just don't, I don't think they think there's enough upside potential is my, my guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like basically on the first, the day they announced this, their stock was at 269 and all this week it's been down at 208, 207. It jumped back up to 227 today. So it's definitely uh, not been great. It hasn't recovered quite at the same level, but you know, overall they've been kind of on a downward trend since, uh, you know, if you look at the six month chart, it's kind of a big dip in their, their week. Oh, Sierra was about to IPO, weren't they? Is that They were about yeah. to IPO, yeah. So take a take a playing a playing card off the board there. Exactly. 
All right. Well, let's move to the next one. Apparently, it's been a bad week in France. OVH apparently is experiencing a very large fire uh, in their SBG2 data center, which is a total loss of that facility. Fire apparently broke out in their electrical room, and companies are being advised to enact their DR plans uh, as this affects all of the Strasbourg, France facilities at the time, uh, which was SBG1 through 4. They said that uh, you know, they couldn't get SVG 1 and 3 back up because they were all shut down because they're all on the same power grid, basically. And so you know, this definitely impacted some big sites in Europe, including Bad Packets, uh, LIChess.org, and the Rust video game Mecker and Encryption Utility Veracrypt. There was a lot of really bad reactions to this on Twitter with lots of people you know, yelling at OVH that they're losing money and that they're killing their business and on and on. And you know, literally the data center is on fire at the same time. So just you know, maybe wait for the fire to be out before you start yelling at your vendor that just had a catastrophic failure. Luckily, there was no casualties related to this fire. And I do believe they've been able to get most of the data centers back online and powered up by now at this point. But uh, yeah, definitely SVG2 is a total loss. And so if you're in that data center, uh, that DR plan is your only hope at this point to get back up and running anytime soon. And say I learned that Rust don't back up any of their user accounts <laughs> to other data centers. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, so they, uh, they indicated initially there was a total loss of their data. And then they kind of clarified that a little later and said that uh, it's only player progression across 25 servers that they had in their entire global fleet. Still, if you were on those 25 servers, you lost all progress <laughs> for your character, which is kind of a bummer. If you're in a video game that you've committed hours to, to playing and then to lose your, your data sucks. It just reminds you... Uh, you know, always have a DR strategy mm-hmm. and always have a plan because, you know, not all DRs are World War Three nuclear holocaust aliens attacking, uh, you know, <laughs> level disasters. They can also just be something as simple as a fire. I was involved in a pretty large data center event like this back in the early, you know, late 20, 2009, 2010 time frame uh, up in Seattle where a, a data center bus bar actually arced and blew out their entire uh, switchgear room, which was pretty horrible traumatizing thing and so that's where i learned the religion of dr very quickly uh, <laughs> as well as the as well as the cable news because that data center happened to also be the one of the tv channels in seattle and i remember standing there and listening to the the guy saying the news is on in two hours and we don't have a way to broadcast because the studio is literally dark and so they had to f- literally you know on the fly figure out how they're gonna get that night's 11 o'clock news out uh, which was kind of crazy good times <laughs> it happens right yeah. Everyone has and, a story. Everyone has a story like this. Yeah, and you can't. Uh, it's it's not over just because your DR worked flawlessly and your business continuity insurance covered all of the costs. It's, it's like okay, now add to your pile of work this year to build a new data center, right? Get new colo space, order all the hardware, build it all out. Just like ah. Well, and many many companies, their DR strategy is smoke and mirrors, right? And so it, you know, a lot of times, yes, we can do a DR test to our DR site and we have all the data, but technically we don't have all the hardware. We don't have all the capacity. And so they may be up and running in a DR site, but maybe not as performant as they once were before that, which is a bit of a bummer. But uh, hopefully, you know, everyone who is in the situation whose data wasn't only in that data center has been able to recover relatively nicely. People can kind of move forward. And I'm sure I'll be getting a lot of new questions from new clients in the future saying, hey, what's your DR strategy? Yeah, really? <laughs> Uh, especially in Europe now where this may become a bigger a bigger uh, concern for those customers. It's more challenging there too because with data privacy rules, the, the data residency is very restricted to the country of citizenship, the owner of the data or the, the person who the data is about. So in, in smaller countries, then you know, it's, there are less data centers around to, to spread your data to. So risk is always going to be higher. And geographically, you know, compared to America anyway, they're very condensed. So it's like you can't really have like a huge data center presence and maintain data sovereignty, you know, in a lot of a lot of these smaller countries. That's crazy. 
Yeah, I wonder if in Sing- if Singapore is big enough to have two regions more than 50 miles apart. Right? Yeah. I mean, Singapore is basically been the DR site for everybody else, too. <laughs> Japan <laughs> DR'd there, Australia <laughs> DR'd there. Although you missed last week, they talked. we talked about Japan converting their local region to a full region in Osaka. So now there's two regions actually in Japan, and they're on different ends of the continent there. So that's relatively nice. Actually, you're right, though. Singapore is pretty small. Singapore is so small, they don't have enough room to build uh, uh, solar farms for renewable energy, basically. So they're, they're talking about floating solar farms out in the ocean to, to power their, their cities anymore. I can't wait to see the all the ships going in and out of there trying to <laughs> negotiate around the floating solar farms. <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, things have not been going so well for the Jedi, or in this case, the Jedi contract with the Pentagon, of course. We've talked about here many, many times on the show. This has been basically court case battles for the last two years. Uh, and apparently the Pentagon may be getting over this as well. <laughs> so the Pentagon is apparently preparing for the possibility that it'll have to move on without the Jedi contract. The two loose suits have apparently gotten to the point where they would now want to depose former President Trump and other former officials. And they're just not sure it's worth the headache and the hassle of this continuing on in the press as well as the GOP and Democratic situation at the time. Plus, the success of some smaller cloud initiatives they've got in the last few years, waiting for this to get resolved, has showed them that maybe multi-cloud is the way to go, and that one cloud to rule them all strategy might not be as necessary. The former CIO, uh, Dana Deasy, also left uh, last month with new CIO John Shepard coming in, who might have a different strategy. These are all kind of coupling around the fact that this contract may just get killed altogether and exit the courts. Uh, And so we'll see kind of what happens with this long term. I do have a quote from John Sherman, the Pentagon acting CIO. The department is fully committed to meeting our warfighters' urgent and unmet cloud requirements. We hope through Jedi Cloud, but other elements of DoD's cloud strategy requirements, such as the cloud-based storage and cloud-enabled software development, are still moving forward, Uh, which to me is a very (laughs) non-committal type of quote right there. I think Amazon going to have to have a, a lawyer service or some kind, some kind of legal service, so they can make money, even when their contracts fail. Because at, at some point, at some point, they're all spending more money on lawyers than they are on actual cloud services anymore. So, yeah, I'd love to know how many tax dollars we wasted on this whole bid process when it comes to the RFP and then all of the lawsuits. Just for what? For what really came down to one million dollars of committed spend. I can't wait to see when the number comes out what it is well i mean it's cost us like how many times have we talked about it on this show yeah yeah <laughs> cost me at least a few hundred brain cells yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh so I, we would definitely celebrate you know the ending of the jedi contract just because you know we started covering it early on in the show thinking it was gonna be something we talked for a few weeks and they get awarded and we move on and two years later into the show we're still talking about it so you know, we're all over it as well <laughs> so unfortunately I, I still disagree with the the whole uh, avoid vendor lock-in by going multi-cloud though I still don't think that's a good idea. 
Yeah, I, I think you lose so much upside of cloud native at that point. But yeah, there's there's reasons why people feel that way, and I I get it. It's just it, it's a tough um, stance to be at, and it's expensive. It, it makes your cost migration not much more expensive to be cloud native. You know, it's interesting too. You know, politically, Amazon's that's not in great shape. But, you know, between this on the cloud side and then the all the unionization efforts going on in the warehouse side, you know, that everyone's coming out against right now. It's just weird time for Amazon. Andy Jassy's kind of walking into a buzzsaw a little bit, I think, the new CEO. <laughs> Maybe that's Bezos' movies. Yeah, really? <laughs> He's like, like, oh, you know what? Mm, good. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much they're costing on the, on the anti-union campaign they're running, though. Like, how many years of union negotiation upside have they spent in legal fees trying to avoid getting unionized at this point? Yeah. A boatload, I'm sure. Unions are great until until they start negotiating things like oh well, each worker is can only can only do uh, seventeen packages per hour, and other than that, you're going to have to start paying piecemeal rates basically for for work. It's just protections that unions bring just break down and, and escalate costs of workers, and then it just end up offshoring things. Yeah, there's got to be a compromise between complete like just abuse that you have of workers' rights and in, in some of these things that cause unionization, but then there's the flip side and. I've been a member of a union in a past life and it was it was frustrating being told when I had to take a break and you know that kind of stuff too it's like no these are mandatory things that you have to do we've negotiated very hard for this contract you go outside now what? yeah yeah if you, if you don't do it if you don't take advantage of these things that we've worked hard for then Mm-hmm. Those rights get taken away. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's I worked for healthcare in, in the UK, and there's there's a union called Unison, which is the biggest union in the country because there's uh, the NHS is the biggest employer in the country. And if if you're not a member of the union, all hope breaks down of trying to negotiate any kind of HR issue without the assistance of a union rep. Yeah, that's crazy town. But I mean, I hope they sort it out. I do think that there's things that a union would fix in Amazon. So it's like. Find the find the middle ground. Hopefully, it's been another uh, very slow week in Amazon news. So I'm going to walk you through two bottom of the barrel stories once again. <laughs> the second one, I actually have questions about, and I thought you guys might be able to help me kind of rationalize some of this in my brain. But the first one is a uh, AWS Lambda has added four trusted advisor checks. Uh, these will help you optimize cost, security, and function runtime versions and fault tolerance of your Lambda functions. And the new checks are as exciting as high error rates. So if they're 10% more in a day, it'll tell you that. Uh, excessive timeouts for your Lambda functions. Use of a deprecated runtime, which is always a bummer. And then VPC-enabled functions in a single AZ, uh, so you can make sure your Lambdas can run in a multi-AZ configuration. Isn't it kind of difficult to actually get to a single VPC-enabled or single zone uh, Lambda function with VPC-enabled? Like, Is it even possible to do that without a lot of heroics? I'm not sure about the vpc one because i i don't really remember but uh how that would work unless it's like you know running out of like network space for eni launches or something like that yeah i mean i guess i guess if you enable if you enable vpc mode you must tell it what subnets you want it to run in and if you only chose one subnet then i guess therefore you would potentially be in one vpc one's az it's a weird bit of heroics to get there so that one's less exciting but the the other three to me are i didn't have this idea but like i know as someone who runs mostly serverless, either functions or containerized workloads, once you deploy that thing and it's if it's just kind of doing what you want, like I don't know any of the error rates. I don't monitor that. You know, for serverless, a lot of the same practices that we have for other applications, you're getting a lot of 
did it do what it was supposed to? Great. You know, event-driven architectures, you, you don't really know. You don't notice the weird patterns necessarily unless you're really monitoring that. So this is a real advantage. Deprecated runtimes, you know. What do you bet I turn this on and I get, I'm sure I get a notification. <laughs> uh, I'm I still it on, in Python got... 2.7? Damn. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I turned it on for a function that I have in the CloudPod account to forward emails to Peter. And, uh, <laughs> it was like... It was like, oh, oh, I guess that one I should update. And then I just changed it to the new version of Node and it was fine. So it's, just, it's a really simple function that basically just takes email coming to Peter at the CloudPod and forwards it to his real email address. Well, a lot of the times that's perfect. That's what you need, right? So. Yeah, it's all, you know, it's it's one of those things I set it up two years ago. I haven't touched it since and mm-hmm. I haven't cared about it. Then I turned this on. And I was like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I should probably update that. Now you got two more years. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if I were a developer... That Amazon is just trying to get me in trouble with my boss right now. <laughs> <laughs> you really should have been monitoring these things all along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, what is this high error rate? Like, what do you do? Why? Yeah. You used to love me because the thing worked. Now you're mad at me because the error rate? Yeah. Come on. Well, apparently one out of every, you know, 100 customers has a bad experience. Mm-hmm. We ignored it for years. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you always put monitoring in, in the scope when you're laying out a project and then you rip that right out when you're missing your deadline. And then you're like, oh, we'll do this right after, you know, we release into prod. Yeah, exactly. And then you don't until it causes feature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you can't fix it yet. And then you get a problem manager ticket and then you get to track it for months on a report <laughs> that, you know, you can't get any time from the project manager to do the work. I, and then I you complain to Amazon and lo and behold, they fixed it. It's awesome. They gave you, they gave you monitoring yeah. out of the box. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'd rather it actually alerted me instead of alerting per Lambda though and saying this, there's this problem with this Lambda. I'd rather trust advisor who sent me alerts to say, you've got Lambda set up, but don't have this monitoring. Like I want to, I want to actually encourage people to deploy monitoring they want rather than replace that functionality and and just move it to trusted device because I don't really think that's what trusted devices should be there for. Exactly, it's not. It's not your monitoring system. It's not. Yeah, I think it's just gonna, trying to give you. I mean, a lot of stuff is in trusted advisor. I don't really think it should be in trusted advisor. I just it's a one simple way to be able to view it and kind of get a quick snapshot of an account and how that account is doing. But it's it's really you know as soon as you get in there and you say oh it has low utilization you're like well, okay well let me actually go look at the graph well you can't do that in trusted advisor you have to go into another system anyway so it's typically very limited where you can actually go in trusted advisor and sometimes they deep link to other services that give you that data and most of the time they don't which is just an annoyance well amazon secrets manager now provides support to replicate secrets in aws secrets manager to multiple aws regions you can give your multi-region application access to replicated secrets in the corresponding region and rely on Secrets Manager to keep the replicas in sync with the primary secret. This feature abstracts the complexity, or Lambda Spackle, of replicating secrets across regions, enabling customers to leverage Secrets Manager to easily manage secrets needed to support multi-region and DR scenarios. You know, and as I was thinking through the logic of this whole thing, I actually don't know how this ever worked before, <laughs> even with Lambda Spackle. So if you're using an RDS database on you know two different regions and you're using Secrets Manager to replicate the secrets... Like, if they were replicated, then when you change one region, you would up- actually update the other region, which then could also get updated by Secrets Manager in that region. And then you're just in this kind of weird back and forth password updating scenario. And then you're just making your apps do all this work, you know, to basically look up secrets of the password for the database. And like, when you start really thinking about this, it just makes your head hurt. <laughs> That's all I learned. I'm like, I actually don't know how this ever really worked well. But uh, you know, I know how. Definitely. <laughs> Hard coded, plain text committed to github in your code that's how <laughs> well that that you can't use secrets manager then because secrets manager is just right you know changing yeah. the passwords exactly passwords. it's not even you 
just hard coded. Uh, this is one of those areas where you, you know, some of the the hoops that we have to jump through because of Amazon's desire not to have multiple, you know, services that cross regions. You know, this is one of those areas where you get kind of burned sometimes, where you get these weird complexity stories where you're like, well, I got to replicate this thing to there. And then, you know, Amazon's luckily been kind of fixing some of those things. Other bad one used to be the uh, S3 <laughs> bucket replications where you use a Lambda function in the middle to do it based off an S3 event or an S3 cloud trail event. There's all kinds of weird patterns like this we've had to do in the past. And so I always like it when I get rid of the Lambda spackle. But this one, it hurts my brain. That's all. Because the irony is that they're just taking Lambda spackle away from you and they're just building it themselves. <laughs> sure. Perfect. Sure, right? Almost, okay. yeah. Yeah. If I don't have to worry about it, great. <laughs> Almost certainly still in Lambda or some kind of internal equivalent. I love it. I'll, oh, sure. <laughs> but you know what won't be in my trusted advisor check? Exactly. It'll be in their trusted advisor check. Yeah. And they can worry about the fact that I haven't updated Node in two years. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a much better story. Yeah, this is the one thing so far this week that I'm like, wow, that's something that I can see everybody rolling out and reducing their management costs, not their AWS bill, but their internal management costs. Yeah, because yeah, every secret and secrets manager is what, 40 cents still? So it's still kind of an expensive service to use. Now it just will automatically replicate 40 cents at a time. Thanks, 80 Amazon. cents. Yeah. <laughs> that's called 80 cents is what that's yeah. called. Yeah. <laughs> GCP is introducing Apache Spark Structured Streaming Connector for PubSub Lite. This release of the open source connector reads streams from PubSub Lite into Apache Spark directly, allowing you to have a replayable source for structured streaming processing with exactly one guarantee and 100 milliseconds of processing latency. For those of you who don't want the complexity of really building a true PubSub process, you get this very basic usable process. Easy tools that make you know things easier. This is... Definitely something that's one of those, you know, you're, if you're running Spark jobs, you do want, you know, to be able to stream data in and out of them, but you probably don't want to do all the plumbing to make that happen. So cool. Thanks, cool. They're not very great at higher end services like this. So it's, it's nice to see that when they do get them, <laughs> you know, like, thank you for this higher value thing I don't have to now think hard about, which is always appreciated. Well, the next one, uh, you know, we talked about in the fall, and this is the Google Cloud Healthcare Consent Management API. And we, I think I had a whole rant about, well, I understand the desire to verticalize your cloud and provide these kind of solutions. This seemed like a really simple use case, and I didn't really understand the consent. When they're saying consent here, I actually now know what they mean by consent because they actually gave us an example of what it is. And it isn't the consent <laughs> that I thought it was last time, so I appreciate the clarification. And I wish they had clarified this in the previous announcement, uh, which they had not. But the Healthcare Manager API is GA, giving customers the ability to greatly scale the management of consents to meet increasing need, particularly amidst the emerging task of managing health data for new care and research scenarios. And what they're talking about is privacy consent. And so the advanced workflow that they gave us here, example, is basically a research organization or a provider basically sets up a unique instance of the API with the privacy concepts and terminology of that organization. And when a provider researcher application offers privacy options to someone on the team saying, hey, will you allow your health data to be used by our research panel or in this study or these different things? And you say, yes, I will or no, I won't. That now gets recorded inside of this API. And as a provider, research app writes data to their data stores. These apps inform the organization's healthcare API about the relevant privacy characteristics of that data. So they track basically you know, this is an approval for this type of access to data or a denial for this access to data. And then when the provider, researcher, or their app tries to actually now go use the data to now run their study or run their query, it queries the consent API to validate they actually have that access to the data per your consent. And that is what this is all about, which is actually a really interesting use case. It's still very niche. Like, I think I was complaining about this service last time is that this is a very niche feature. 
I think this is still a very niche feature, uh, but there's clearly someone using Google Cloud for machine learning AI who desperately needed this capability is my take. <clears throat> 23 and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Something in my throat. <laughs> I wonder how niche this is. I wonder if this is truly niche or is it just something that's sort of under the covers, like how much research is going in from, you know, insurance agencies to, you know, pharmaceutical agencies to research agencies. And like, maybe this is a huge workload that's just no one knows about, you know. It's, it's very possible. I yeah. mean, I learned that out of the mortgage space <laughs> right. when I started the mortgage. Like, yeah. How complex this world actually is. It's very possible it's the case. I also see this kind of being a Trojan horse into a couple other things. Like if uh, GDPR becomes a big deal in the States and you need to track privacy of data for website usage, you could use something similar to this. So there's ways to take this capability and then actually expand it into different use cases in the future. And just healthcare is a, an easy way to say, hey, we're, we're doing this thing without it being about privacy. Because if they said it was about privacy, then people will say, oh, Google's worried about it. And that might, that might spook people. Right. Uh, I'm just picturing someone building this into their app with the I consent checkbox and the next button that is grayed out until you check the I consent checkbox. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. I was picturing something similar, but mine was just a static web page with, with uh, like two-point font text with just an I agree button at the bottom, which, yeah. no, one, which no one's ever going to read. 600 pages, <laughs> yeah. 600 page PDF. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is probably the, the sad reality of these consent agreements. So they are probably walls of text that no one reads and they just scroll down to the bottom and hit I accept. Yeah, definitely. The privacy is becoming a bigger deal in healthcare in particular. I think it might become something in the future. Well, uh, Google has announced dates or save the date for Google Cloud Next 21, which will be taking place October 12th through the 14th, which, thank you, Jesus, it's not nine weeks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, they went so the opposite direction. <laughs> so, you know, it was funny, uh, like a month ago, they sent a survey out and asked for feedback and, and I filled it out for Google Cloud Next. There was a free form box and I literally wrote out a full probably five paragraphs until it told me I couldn't fit any more text into it uh, <laughs> about how how they, you know, basically diluted their, you know, the experience and the brand by making it so long. And apparently they listened to me because they, they've now agreed that they only going to do the normal Google Cloud Next time period. I think it was more my entry, which was instead of in the same box, it was just nine weeks too long. And then I hit some. <laughs> yeah, you could do that too. <laughs> now nine minutes. <laughs> I basically said it was difficult. You know, the recordings weren't able to be found quickly. You know, I, I did like some of the things they did where, you know, only a couple of courses a day. So you don't have to have, a, have your full day. You know, definitely nine weeks is too much. Uh, three weeks for Amazon was okay. Uh, I also think it diluted their experience just a little bit. But they are telling us that you can join Google on October 12th to the 14th for keynotes from industry luminaries and interactive learning opportunities with top Google developers, exploring dynamic content across all learning levels, and dive deep into technologies and solutions spanning the Google Cloud and Google Workspaces portfolio through breakout sessions, demos, and hands-on training. They do then say it's too early to determine the exact shape and experience of the event, uh, which is basically code of saying we have no idea if it's going to be digital or physical yet. <laughs> it's in October. We think it might be far enough out that with vaccine and everything else we might be able to do this in person or hybrid at least and until covid tells them what to do they're not going to tell us what to do uh, which is probably a safe bet at this point just kind of keep it vague keep it open until they know for sure yep if it were all virtual i'm surprised they haven't taken the opposite approach of the nine weeks or three weeks and just do the uh sort of the netflix model of you just release the season and people get to binge watch and the release date you have the release date and that's it. 
I think it's for the people that are looking for the community. You know, I think that's what the the intent was over the nine weeks, I guess. Because the content, you know, it ends up being some stuff that you're going to watch on YouTube or, or your video streaming of choice. But, you know, the, the the conferences and the events have a lot more than just those session contents. And I think that's I think that's been the real struggle to try to recreate. Yeah, the hallway track has definitely been lacking all these conferences. I'd love to do a conference in person again. <laughs> I, I sort of miss them, which I didn't yeah. think I would, which is sort of funny. Pandemic's weird. Like, <laughs> I yeah. want to do things I never wanted to do before. Yep. All right. Well, next up is Google has also generally available the hierarchical firewalls, which is a terrible name. I don't know if I could say that properly every time. Hierarchical. 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 Anyways. Hierarchical. <laughs> this allows you to set your policies to the org, folder, project, and VPC level, now allowing you even more ways to screw up an end user if these aren't correct uh, <laughs> and difficult to troubleshoot. Hierarchical firewalls are enforced at the VM level like a VPC firewall, and they are not applied at the edge as traditional firewalls would be. Uh, so do keep that in mind as you're thinking about these. Even further complicate this, Google is also adding two new attributes to the hierarchical firewall, which I'm calling the high firewall here. Target networks give administrators a granular control which VPC networks are configured with that rule and therefore restrict the firewall rules to VMs and specified networks only or to create an exception for that VPC. Additionally, you can also target service accounts to allow an administrator to define a targeted group of VMs, which certainly firewalls will apply. So not only do I now have four levels of obfuscation of this firewall rule, but now I can also say, well, I think that one might be it, but it only applies to this type of account. And this account, I don't think is that type of account. And so therefore, I'm not sure if that rule is actually applying. And I can't wait for these troubleshooting calls. They're going to be fantastic. <laughs> Instead of high firewall, why not hi-fi? Ooh, I named it high. That was me. I was like, high high firewall, H-I-E. Yeah. Hi-Fi. Yeah. I'm going to call it High Firewall. Well, Hi-Fi is good, too. I like it. I think we got to call Google Marketing and be like, yes, no, you have a better name now. It's this. Hi-Fi. Well, hopefully there's some Google product managers listening and they can take mm-hmm. it back for us. Like, hey, better call be it the listening. High-Firewall or Hi-Fi Firewall. Mm-hmm. Just Hi-Fi. Hi-Fi. Yeah, I'm good with that. It's just a little easier to say than Hierarchical Firewall. I will say as annoying it is to have these layers for uh, very heavy compliance workloads, you need to be able to actually give the developers, you know, self-service experience. You have to point to a layer that they can't touch and that there's controls there that can't do whatever they want. And so really depends on how you use these layers. You know, it is sort of an advantage to be able to map them out and be like, no, we, we don't let this crazy port open to at the at the blast radius here but we allow them to talk to normal things here so it's, it is nice but i think as long as it's very clearly defined and something you can find quickly and it's also a broad to narrow kind of scoping i think it has value i think it can, it can provide inputs and value to your operation it's just most companies try to get very restrictive at the top and then broaden it down i think it's the wrong direction yeah don't let your security team know about this that's what i'm saying you know you use it <laughs> So that you have simplicity. But it's, when you point it out to your GRC team, no, we, we have controls. We're good. Yeah, but how much easier is it to do it this way than it is to check every single VPC or every single account or every single microservices deployment to make sure that they deployed their rules the right way? This is awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you start, I mean, you start just writing rules for exceptions instead of writing the same rules everywhere. 
Agreed. Well, Azure is giving you new ways to scale your critical apps cost-effectively with Azure Disk Storage, which I always love a good Azure Disk story. So first of all, Azure Disk has launched several new capabilities. The first one being the Azure announced disk bursting for small premium SSDs, which we talked about last week in the lightning round and made fun of. <laughs> but you know, initially it was just for 256 gig disks. Now it's up to 512 gig disks with new on-demand experience. And unlike the credit-based systems where you can only burst if you have accumulated credits, the new on-demand bursting capability allows you to burst up to six times of the provision amount or whatever you need not to exceed 30,000 IOPS and 1,000 megabits of throughput. And you can also get a sustained higher performance and performance tiers for premium SSDs because we all love good premium SSD. And <laughs> giving you the flexibility to scale this performance without increasing the disk size by selecting a higher performance tier. With performance tiers and on-demand disk bursting, you can now have two options to scale your disk performance for planned versus unplanned performance scaling and for duration-based timeframes. Would make it just that much more complicated to capacity plan your Azure storage <laughs> needs? You know, we make fun. Of Azure and their, their disk services and their premium and ultra premium services and things, but I suppose if you think about it, all the providers have the same have, have multiple tiers of service. You know, whether you've got slow magnetic disks in Amazon or GP2 and now GP3 or provision diops, I guess it's just the way it's marketed. I think that's it's just it, GP2 versus GP3 is you know that to me smells of technical capability of the underlying hardware. It's going to have a different cost model. It's going to cost Amazon a different amount of money to run. They're going to have a different margin or they're going to have to do something different to get the same margin. It's based on you know the technical capabilities. This feels like pay for privilege and I just don't like it. And it is partially the way it's being marketed to you. It's being marketed as a premium feature and that if you're only... If only you paid for the premium thing, you wouldn't have had that outage or you wouldn't have had that issue. And, you know, then the optics to an executive team and to an, you know, to your CIO and CTO and all that, it's just, it's a bad, as a, as a practitioner, it's a bad story to not choose premium, which then causes you to send more money. No. Where at least, <laughs> you know, where at least, Wait a you know, minute. You, <laughs> where at least in Amazon space, you know, you can, you can say, well, we're using SSD. You know, yes, we're not using provisioned IOPS, but we're also, you know, it's, Amazon's very clear about how many IOPS you get. Google's pretty clear about that as well. So like it's all very well out there where Microsoft answer is, well, just go to premium. You don't have to worry about these problems. Yeah, it's, it, it's a, it becomes one of those issues though that ends up on the cloud checklist when a when a potential customer asks you, oh, when you deploy things to the cloud, do you use premium disks? It's just, it becomes one of these escalating things where now you're forced to pay money because customers expect the premium service, whereas you know, they may get perfectly good performance from the non-premium service. I mean, honestly, if I'm passing that cost back to the customer, I don't care at that point. Like, you want to pay Mr. Customer for a ridiculous thing you don't need, and I can charge a markup of margin on that? I will gladly do that for you. Yeah, when we're doing our cost optimization stuff, oftentimes it's the exact opposite. You get the, the red exclamation point next to the, uh, did you know you're using premium disk here? <laughs> why are you doing that that same customer though is going to be like hey this isn't performing very well why aren't you using premium just like six weeks later so yeah. <laughs> no, downgrade nobody knows nobody can tell nobody cares it's true no one cares until <laughs> it's it, until it cares so it's like it, i i hate these names because like use the performance that you need look at your workload make a guess if it if it stops performing use a different one and we did exactly that last year Ryan and I, I'm going to blame him too, because we, we converted about 90 terabytes of provisioned IOP storage to regular GP2 storage. Nobody And no noticed. one noticed. No. <laughs> no one noticed. Yeah, it, was awesome. it was awesome. I mean, there, there are times where you are actually very IO disbound, but most modern applications that are web apps don't have that problem. Maybe the database server maybe has it. But even then, it's only if they're doing dumb things like massive store procedures and trigger events and all kinds of stuff. But if you're just using this dumb data store, your needs for the stuff unless you're at massive scale kind of dramatically reduce. I would say the majority of what Jonathan's referring to was database load. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I, again, yep. it, it, it all depends on what you need. And, yeah. you know, and I know in that particular scenario, someone felt that they needed because disk. they're database people and they need high disk and they need all the stuff. And so they just made that assumption and that assumption was wrong. It's just an old school way of, you know, it's it's not elastic compute. You know, it's not provision what you need mentality. It's it's provision what you'll need at peak. And, you know, and it's just like we had it peak once in this one workload over here. Doesn't mean it's everywhere. I remember back in my storage networking days and when I used to run infrastructure teams, you know, having to provision, you know, fiber connected, fiber disk and high throughput and fastest disk possible and all the stuff for the database team and, you know, spending bajillions of dollars per gigabyte. And then, you know, not performing and them coming and saying, well, your disk isn't performing. And I'm like, what are you using my disk for? Like, you shouldn't have this problem. They're like, well, well, we need to be able to do, you know, query 20 million records and I'll put this into a thing in five milliseconds. And I'm like, why? What's the purpose of that function? Like, no one's going to look at 20 million data points. And if it's a reporting use case, it's the wrong use or case. Or you get the opposite. You do all that and then they complain about how expensive it is. And you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I luckily was not at a team's where... You know, we had bill back to those departments. Now with Amazon, everyone gets bill back, which is beautiful. But back in those days, you know, it was all sunk cost. So once we spend the money, it doesn't matter if you need it or not. We already spent the money. So, well, Azure uh, is giving you some more complexity to how you architect and optimize your traffic delivery between your Azure resources and clients on the internet with routing preferences, which allows you to customize underlying routing of your internet-bound traffic to and from Azure. You can choose between routing via the Microsoft Global Network or routing via the internet that uses transit ISP networks. While Microsoft Global Network delivers traffic over an exceptionally reliable private global network, the transit ISP option gives you a cost-optimized choice with performance predominantly dominated by transit ISP. These routing options are also referred to as cold potato and hot potato routing. What? Beep! <laughs> That's a terrible name. I did have to go learn about this. So apparently this is basically how you, you either hold the data on your network and so or you hot potato it off your network, which is why they came up with this name. But it is terrible. Where do my packets go? We dropped it like it's hot potato. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Drop I'll have the, the point for lightning round. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a terrible name for that. So basically, that's what you're, you're saying. You're I either want to... From the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, if you want to pay less money for worse performance because you're not using Microsoft's highly globalized, you know, probably 100 gigabit network, <laughs> you can do that by having them hot potato your traffic off their network. Uh, as quickly as possible to, you know, Verizon or to whatever other ISP. And, it, and then it basically crosses, you know, bajillion BGP links and hits your customer sometime on the other side. The nice thing was Microsoft included a performance comparison using Thousand Eyes, which is a great modern tool that shows their network crushes the ISP option they're giving you now. Uh, so you get to pay less for a worse experience. Because nobody's using it. <laughs> <laughs> this is right. what we asked for, though. We didn't want the premium. We didn't want it to pay more for the premium. We wanted to pay less for the worse so here we go we got it 90 percent of the time like a this isn't under your control so it doesn't really matter right the, the network performance is the network performance and so this allows you know a, a, an option and microsoft has to get that money back and so you know you opt into it i get that but yeah what a weird level of complexity that i hope i never ever have to think about in my architectures it's, it's yeah, just it's, test both figure it out it's a great well, and r- routing yeah. into your cloud hybrid like uh, yeah bah. You know, like <laughs> Microsoft must love it though. Now they give people a cheaper option so that they don't have to upgrade their own network as their customer base increases. Yeah. 
I mean, it is basically, you know, this is basically the way Amazon manages these things, right? It's, you know, it's using the ISPs and routing between regions and you can't really do anything. And so now it's kind of, it's kind of neat when you think about that, you know, that you have that sort of model built in where you can choose one or the other. So you can stick with the Amazon way of hot potatoing your data off the network. Mm-hmm. Well, well right, but it's also globally distributed. So it's, yeah. you know, like it's, I don't know if it's less prone to failure or not, but I would assume so. I mean, in theory, I, again, it's it's always this risk of, you know, there's multiple ways in the past. Why can't I have this automatically chosen based on best, you know, cost performance ratio under some parameters and let Microsoft choose that for me? Because oh, they're going to bill you. So they want you to. Of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get your well, permission. In uh, today's episode of I don't think you know what that word means. Azure is announcing you can prevent bootkit and rootkit infections by enabling Azure trusted launch for their virtual machines. Again, that's the trusted launch feature. Trusted Launch allows admins to deploy virtual machines with verified and signed bootloaders, OS kernels, and a boot policy leverages the Trusted Launch Virtual Trusted Platform Module, or VTPM, to measure and attest to whether the boot was compromised. And you know, then I read this article, and all I can think is, why is this part of Azure? And why would anyone not use this feature? And there's zero additional cost to it, and it supports the most common used OS images out there, with more coming soon. Shared security model, folks, like, I'm going to use an image provided by Azure. If this is a concern to me and Azure is going to do this thing for me automatically. I just, I don't understand this one at all. Thinking through, like I can't figure out why, you know, why it would be complex to roll out over your entire platform. They're not charging for it, which backs that statement up. Like this makes, you know, this is such an obvious choice to just do this for the customer because it's easier. Well, I think about image building pipelines though if you take if you take one of their images and you add your own layers layers of junk onto it you know all these security uh agents and things that, that get deployed at some point i suppose you run the risk of, of having a compromised agent <clears throat> solar winds installed on <laughs> hmm. um on, onto your images which you did you know distributing globally so a, a way to verify that the images contain the things that they're supposed to makes a lot of sense so I get it if I was buying images through Marketplace and you, you want to make sure that they're not injecting a bootloader or they're injecting rootkits or that kind of stuff from the third party. But then that's also sort of a Marketplace concern for me. Like, you, why isn't the Marketplace doing some level of security scanning and an analysis to make sure these things are safe before letting customers sell them to you? Um, you know, but again, if you if it's if I start with one of these virtual trusted images and I put all my security tools onto it and I create a new golden image off of that. I, I would use this. Yeah, for sure. Now, if they say all of a sudden because your your security tool modified the OS kernel, they're no longer going to support it. That's kind of a bummer. So there's definitely some weird edge cases on this one, too. Yeah, the minute you signed anything, right, you got to validate that signature against trust. And so it's, you know, how does that work exactly is, is important. Can I use it or am I just invalidating it immediately? I tell, I tell you how it works because of uh, you know uh, a lovely disk encryption implementation that we've worked with for, for a long time. What happens is the binaries the binaries are signed and trusted by the the agent, and then when you need to upgrade, you turn off the agent checks, you do the upgrade, you turn on the agent, and you tell it to implicitly trust whatever it was you just installed. Therefore, like nullifying any security advantage whatsoever. It just becomes mm-hmm. it just becomes a, a, a total checkbox. <laughs> goodness well speaking of comprised systems uh, china is gonna have a new region for asia (laughs) 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 i I avoided making a a, a culturally related joke earlier that's not cultural that's national (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently, Asia, in order to meet the China market's growing need for global public cloud services, Microsoft is planning to bring a new Asia region online in North China in 2022 via their local operating partner, 21 ViaNet. This will double the capacity of Microsoft's intelligent cloud portfolio in China in the coming years, which includes Azure, Office 365, Dynamics 365, and Power Platform, operated all by 21 via net, as that is the way you set up a business in China. You cannot actually do it yourself. You just have to have a, a local sponsoring company, which is 21 via net for Azure. So there you go. Uh, if you are in doing business in China and you need additional capacity or region or better latency across the China region, you will not have that capability sometime in 2022 uh, from Azure. And this will be the next Bloomberg headline. Microsoft gives cloud computing to China <laughs> to install hardware into <laughs> software. And then Bloomberg can have a whole expose on it again, and we can all laugh about how silly it is. <laughs> Azure has released uh, several new capabilities to their infrastructure as a service capabilities this week. First up is the new MSV2 media memory VMs with 20% increase in CPU performance and access to up to 192 vCPU and 4 terabytes of memory, uh, which is always nice. That was a good spot instance. Or sorry, a good uh, new middle of the road memory thing. I'm reading ahead. <laughs> Simplified acquisition of computer compute capacity at deep discounts via Azure spot features. This capability allows customers to improve the overall runtime of scale-out apps by letting Azure try and redeploy previously evicted spot VMs as part of a scale set, uh, which is nice. Something VMware does, or sorry, AWS does already and GCP does. They're now integrating the VMware SD-WAN and the Azure Virtual WAN Hub, allowing customers to easily connect branch offices and remote locations to Azure. Always like a good connectivity story. The new Azure Route Server helps customers streamline ops between any network appliance and Azure Virtual Network by facilitating dynamic routing, which, yay. <laughs> it's been a while, I guess. They're now extending Azure Auto Manage to Linux. Apparently, it used to only support Windows, and this will let them manage both their Windows and Linux VM instances through one control plane, uh, allowing them to patch, update your kernels, do all those things that break your trusted images that we just talked about. A simplified decision-making with the new Azure Load Balancing Wizard to make it easy to pick the right load balancer at the right time. And you can now load balance across IP addresses with the Azure Load Balancer in addition to the instance endpoints. Uh, you get new... How do wizards work from the CLI? Uh, they don't. This is a console feature. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> they give you new orchestration capabilities for scale sets, which again is auto-scaling groups. On-demand capacity reservations enable customers reserve compute capacity for one or more VM sizes. The Azure Resource Mover lets customers seamlessly move VMs between regions, which this is cool. I actually would like this feature in other clouds. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I want that VM, but I want it over there, and they just magic it over. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's kind of cool. Azure Confidential Computing capabilities are now out there. They're giving you a new auto key rotation for disk, snapshot, and image encryption keys, which I like this feature as well, as re-encrypting all that stuff is a nightmare when you have to rotate your commercial keys every couple of years. You can now get centralized migration for all infrastructure apps and data with SQL Server migration. Uh, PowerShell now supports migrating VMware virtual machines and a new preview app uh, containerization tool lets you migrate .NET and web apps to Azure Kubernetes. This is very similar to the Google tool for this. And new Azure migration frameworks for Java and LAMP stacks and PostgreSQL scenarios, all from the infrastructure service team at Azure this week. I'd say props. That could have been 15 news uh, releases. It could have been. Like, that's a ton of features that they released. In this cycle. If it was Amazon, there'd be two. It'd be a main blog post and a what's new blog post <laughs> for each of those. <laughs> <laughs> for each, every one. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I did appreciate the consolidated list. It was nice to uh, just run through that real quickly. Uh, well, Oracle's up next, and I don't actually have a story here, but I did want to point out that their earnings were yesterday, and they apparently you know, exceeded revenue, had solid results, higher dividends, and increased number of share repurchase programs are doing, uh, and their stock still cratered. So, sorry, Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> People. So all good news except for the stock price. I love the stock. It's price. great, isn't it? 
Uh, you know, apparently yeah. <laughs> the stock market is a little spooked by the amount of capital they're spending on data centers for their cloud and a bunch of other things. And the revenue was up, but not as much as they thought it should be. And so, you know, because they're bad at their jobs, they now punish Oracle for doing their job properly. That's how I see it. It's all about the whisper number. They're not punishing Oracle now. They're just, they give them too much credit before the numbers actually came out. Exactly. Well, that's it for new news. I'm going to do the lightning round, Peter. Introducing a new API allowing you to stop in-progress workflows in Amazon Forecast. Do you think they would have forecasted well, it before use they... For... Yeah. Oh, well, ah. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Order in the court. <laughs> Sorry. No. It, uh, okay. All right. Let's do this again. And this time, Ryan is going to go first. <laughs> Introducing a new API allowing you to stop in-progress workflows in Amazon Forecast. Seems like you wouldn't have to, you know, start it in the first place if you could forecast it correctly. No, nope. I mean, I thought it would have stopped it automatically because it forecasted at the stop. That's how I saw it. Amazon forecast told me you're both going to say that. At least, at least it would have done for- if I hadn't stopped oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazon RDS for Postgres supports managed disaster recovery with cross-region automated backups. I mean, Landis Backle dies again. Yeah, that's just more Foghorn code that we can retire that's dying to break. Amazon Connect now provides an out-of-the-box chat user interface for your website. Sounds out of this world. I just look forward to more of those chat boxes at the bottom of every website that wants to like send me a little blinky note. So like, can I help you? Can I do a thing? Can I do it? Like, no. You always ask what those things is whenever I get one that I actually want to talk to, then it's just a bot. Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually. Yeah. They're always it's like, just hey, a do you want to talk, do you want talk to a person? I'm like, yes, I love to talk to a person. I have a question I don't know the answer for and I can't find your website. And it's like, what are you here for today? Here's a list of predetermined items. Like, none of those are yeah. them. That's yeah. not why I'm here. Yeah. We're not going to staff a call center for yeah. you. We're just, we're just going to make it look like we can't chat box thing. Customers, but we really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I just say that Foghorn's little chat box over there actually puts the faces of the real people who are currently monitoring the channel. So you made your you put oh. pictures on your bots? No, there's like a little pop-up window, except on the, you know, how can we help you today? Click here. But then on there, sometimes there's only one face. Sometimes there's two faces. Sometimes there's three faces. So and it's uh, one of those people are the people who are going to respond so you, to you. So you wrote a Lambda function for your bots to rotate their faces. Got it. Okay. Not at all. This is all done by like HubSpot or something. I don't know who does it. Right now it's Keith and Brooke. Keith and Brooke are ready to go. Awesome. That's, That's awesome. That's kind of yeah. cool. Does that work nice 24 time. hours a day? <laughs> Probably. Excellent. And then it's just really a bot. It's just really Keith, a bot. Keith never sleeps. That, that reminds me, I still need to book my Foghorn Uber ride. <laughs> through, the yeah, market, really. through the marketplace. Well, you, you might be able to do it at Google Cloud Next. Yeah. You know, because you might need that ride home. Yeah. So yeah. That'd be a good, from San Francisco, that'd be a lovely ride home. I'll, I'll... I bet Keith would drive you home. <laughs> AWS Step Functions adds tooling support for YAML. Because what every complex step function needed was complex YAML code. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for this. The only thing more complex than defining step functions is figuring out where I put that extra space. Oh. I hate the space. <laughs> Every time. AWS Systems Manager Change Manager now supports multi-level approvals. Finally, I can keep Ryan from unapproving my changes <laughs> by being <Yes>. after Ryan. <laughs> I'll just lambda it. 
it'll, it'll <laughs> it's fine. deny it's it nice. all over again. So you know? what controls this? So is it like systems manager, change manager, approval manager? <laughs> it just gets deeper oh and God. deeper. <laughs> it just does. I wonder if those names actually went through a multi-level approval process. Yeah. As long as that they level should. was Andy Jassy. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope they sometimes figure out that the systems manager naming nomenclature they've gotten going is terrible. And fix that I, someday. I doubt it. It though. seems to me that they're doubling down, like all the new features that are coming out. It's like, and when when have you seen Amazon sort of like fix that in in the past? Because they don't. I mean, they keep they properly. keep rolling out new consoles trying to fix the user experience. I feel like <laughs> you know, systems manager, change manager, systems manager, run command, all these things. Like those are it's a terrible user UI experience. Because I never know which window to go to. I'm. You know, if they, you know, those old Microsoft tasks used to like measure how many clicks it took you to fix a problem in your MCSE test. Like if they did that for the the Amazon tests for how to like use Systems Manager, I would fail it every time because yeah. like, I can never recall which menu that thing I want is in. Nope, I just go through every one until I find it. That said, it's got a whole bunch of features I I that's didn't a, know that's it had the problem. last time I went through everything. That's the problem. Like I mean, the the main web console has got you know a couple of hundred services or something by now. Systems Manager itself has probably got. 40 or 50 separate components to it. So I, I don't know how they would not have to brand it as a as a systems manager type thing. Well, and, and worse, because it's kind of this jack of all trades, it actually has multiple scripting language formats, which is kind of the worst. Like, So not only is it 40 or 50 tools, but they all have 40 or 50 interaction models, which is also problematic. And they're pulling in they're pulling in CloudWatch metrics and and uh, dashboards now. They're pulling in other services. And so they really are just trying to make it a one-stop shop. But it is sort of like when you're like, how do I turn on patching again? Click. No. Click. No. Click. Inventory. That sounds right. No. No. That's not it. <laughs> where's, the, where's the blackout thing where I set my blackouts again? Is yeah. it under calendar? No. No. <laughs> yeah. If only there was a systems manager lightning round manager. <laughs> yeah, systems manager, lightning round manager. That's what I need because I forgot all of your answers. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the only one I remembered, which was the space in the YAML. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Ryan. Good job. So, as we already mentioned, uh, Google Cloud Next has now given us dates October 12th through the 14th. Amazon reInvent, of course, has given us dates as well November 29th through December 3rd. They've said it's going to be in Vegas. Still TBD. We'll see. Uh, still keeping an eye out for Microsoft and Oracle and all the other conferences. But you know, now the two big ones are out there. And Microsoft Ignite's already passed us. We're fully into the new 2021 year and marketing budgets, clearly. I just want to mention the uh, AWS Twitch channel. If you, you, know, you mentioned earlier, missing the, the hallway chats and things from these conferences. There's regularly content from SAs and uh, product owners and things in the AWS Twitch channel. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they have office hours and things for different products there, but you can join, anyone, anyone can join and um, chat with uh, smart people about services and how to use them. Oh, that's fantastic. fantastic. That is pretty cool. I've actually tuned it on a couple of times in the background while I was doing other things, just listening in because I saw on Twitter someone I like is going to be on the on it doing something but you know the other thing is if you want to talk to smart amazon google and asia people you can always come to our our slack team too yes find on our website so do actually check that out or sign up for our newsletter if you want to check out all of our great show notes when they get published with our episodes uh check that out on the website which we love people coming to the website coming to the chat room it's getting we get a few more people every week it seems like which i always really enjoy talking to people finding where they came from and a global audience for sure well, that is it for this week in the cloud. We'll see you next week. See you later. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. 
And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Thank you.